today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. On November 15th, the Ontario government is going to provide an update on the books. What could they be? Is this a budget? What is it? Peter Graff is with us, political science professor at McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Pleasure to be here. Uh, why now, Peter, do you think? Uh, well, every year the uh, the provincial government puts out a fall economic update. It's sort of the start of the, the budget cycle to say, here's the state of the books. So when we're thinking of budgeting and bringing the budget in in the uh, spring, you know, it's a kind of realistic set of parameters in terms of what spending is going to be like, where uh, the, the revenues are, what sort of borrowing might be necessary to cover a deficit. So it's part of the annual budget cycle, although we'll look at this a bit differently this year because... You know, it's a government that didn't deliver the budget last year. I was so, just going to say, didn't we? We didn't get one of these during the campaign, did we? No. So, I mean, part of it will also be, you know, it is an opportunity to indicate uh, some changes they plan to make in terms of, you know, spending decisions or not making spending decisions that have been previously announced. You know, which will have an impact on the expected uh, deficit or surplus at the end of the year. So we may see this as a, you know, a bit of an announcement of, of plans that the government hopes to do before we get to next spring's budget. Uh, can they use this? Uh, can they use the excuse that uh, you know we had to wait and see where everything was and blah 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 and where we are and, and deficits and such and what the old government was doing before we can really sit down and figure out a plan? Uh, and does uh, and does that wash? Yeah, I mean, I don't think they need an excuse for this. It's kind of a it's a normal thing. Uh, the problem for them, of course, is this begins to be things they begin to own. So they did. Uh, put in place uh, the panel with the former BC Premier Gordon Campbell to come and give them a sense of, you know, what was the real state of the books. Uh, and so now, you know, they begin to have to make their decisions. I mean, one of the things that Campbell did was ultimately he said that, uh, you know, one of the things that the Liberals had on the books in their, their argument with the uh, Auditor General was probably not legitimate, but that the Auditor General probably wasn't right either. So at the moment, uh, they were able to say that the Liberals, you know, had kind of made the books look about $5 billion better than they, you know, they should have. Um, but somewhere down the line, this government's going to say, yes, it wasn't $5 billion, but, you know, maybe there's $2.5 billion that we can take off uh, the deficit as a result of this. So they've got a card they can play at some point in terms of reducing the deficit, and the, part of it is, just, you know, just from a kind of accounting tricks. Uh, and, you know, part of the question is how are they going to play that this year and in coming years? So will, they, will we be surprised if they continue with the same accounting practices that Kathleen Wynne did? Uh, well, I think we might be a bit surprised because they were so opposed to them. Yeah. Um, although, again, you know, there's a situation where you had uh, people who were experts in public sector accounting saying Wynne was right. Uh, it seemed to me that the Auditor General also made a reasonable case. And, I mean, the, the, this report from Gordon Campbell said, well, it's a kind of situation where, the, the you know, the asset probably doesn't have 100% of its value, like uh, the Liberals said, but it doesn't have zero, like the Conservatives used to say. So it's somewhere in the middle, and we've got to figure that out in the next few years. And presumably the timing of figuring that out will be advantageous to the, to the governing party. Uh, but, you know, there's also a way in which that report came back and said, well, the deficit is probably going to be more like $15 billion this year, but that included $5 billion of things announced uh, by the Liberals during the campaign that the Conservatives have no interest in putting into place. So, I mean, we might also see with this update uh, an argument that the government had already, you know, improved uh, Ontario's financial situation by not moving ahead uh, with those uh, spending uh, cuts. But, uh, you know, I think at this stage, uh, what really this report is going to do is trying to set the stage for and prepare uh, Ontario residents for uh, whatever their budgetary plan is. So if they really do have a plan of trying to uh, cut the deficit in a short order, 
I think they'll begin to prepare uh, the population with sort of nightmare scenarios of what's going on and the necessity then to, to cut being brought to the fore. Uh, Vic Fidelli calling this a, a mini budget, uh, and and obviously a lot on the left are saying that means further spending cuts. Uh, how does this government balance all of that? When you know that was during the campaign, that was the that's what the liberals were were saying the conservatives were were going to do, where they were going to start cutting things. How do they? How do the conservatives balance this so that they they don't appear like they're you know can be compared to a Mike Harris government per se? Well, I mean, it was, you know, a difficult thing with their platform in that they were promising tax cuts, uh, you know, a balanced budget, uh, but no uh, no cuts to programs. So something has to give, and I presume that for most of their supporters, uh, a certain number of cuts will be, uh, you know, quite fine with them. I mean, some of the mini-budget will simply be, I think, the announcement that uh, things that the, um, the Liberals had promised in the last budget aren't going to come into place, and we've seen some... Examples of that, like the decision not to move ahead with the three uh, university campuses outside the GTA. Uh, we're also expecting in the next uh, week or so uh, the review of the social assistance program. And so if there's going to be cuts coming there in terms of benefits, they may not be you know, draconian, but if there's any, anything that they plan to cut or change in that, presumably that will also be reflected in the economic statement. But yeah, I mean, I think the Conservatives ultimately have a sense that their electoral base probably won't punish them if they don't make large cuts uh, in the healthcare system, that if they make cuts elsewhere, in many cases, uh, you know, the people who voted them won't say voted for them won't say, "Wait a second, you promised zero cuts." They might even be willing to claim that these were efficiencies. So, uh, I suspect, uh, you know, the government's preparing Ontarians for that. I mean, the other one is to say, "Well, you we have to release us from our our promise because the Liberals so misstated the state of the books that we have to take more radical action than we proposed." You know, that's another possibility. I mean, a third is that, you know, there was a promise of, you know, billions of dollars to build subways in, in Toronto during this campaign. It may be that there's a bit of a decision to step that back and or at least push that promise into the future so that, you know, that $5 billion or whatever that was promised uh, doesn't um, make the budgetary situation that much difficult, more difficult for the, the Ford government, particularly if they want to find space. You know, you can't see your opposed deficits and then bring in a tax cut, which reduces your revenues. So, uh, if if tax cuts are really what matters to them, then they may also find ways of trying to release themselves from their more costly promises. Uh, some were concerned when, as you mentioned, those cuts to to the university campuses, uh, expansion of the campuses, that, that he might touch LRT. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think... I think it's a government that does want to, uh, you know, doesn't believe in having as big a state and wants lower taxes, uh, as, as as well as probably having some view that you don't want to expand the deficit. So I would say any kind of money that's left out there on the table is, you know, likely to be taken back. Um, so is LRT in danger? I wouldn't say in the short term, but certainly if, uh, you know, councillors, you know, want to make this a game again and try to relitigate it from the get-go, I think it does really give the green light for the province to to pull that money back. And, you know, certainly it won't be coming back for infrastructure in that case if the real point is just trying to either drive the deficit to zero or find some budgetary space to provide tax cuts. Do you think we'll end up there with this next council? Uh, It remains to be seen. I mean, it's up to the councillors themselves what their appetite is for uh, kind of you know, a high-energy politics that achieves nothing. Uh, I mean, the the math is there to see this project continue to move along as it does, has in the past. Uh, the vote is close enough that councillors who want to make it a big issue can continue making it a big issue. Um, 
but you know, do do they have the reading that their constituents want that, or that they want them to get on and solve some other problems in this city? So, I think a lot will be based on what uh, what the returned councillors decide they want to do, whether they want their you know their uh, their memories of their time on council to be spent on relitigating the same project fifty times, or whether they're <laughs> happy to have done that forty nine times and now can move on to something else. Uh, there's an op-ed piece in the National Post. I'm blindsiding you here, Peter. I don't know if you've seen this or not. Uh, that says that Doug Ford's plan for climate change is going to be much better than Trudeau's, uh, and that the ultimate weakness of the carbon tax is its lack of leverage. Uh, without any prior knowledge of that, any thought? I mean, are, are, is that is that a is that a dream? Uh, well, I mean, we'd have to see. I mean, there are people who have criticized the emphasis on carbon taxes by saying that if we really want to go down a different energy path. Uh, we need a heavier hand for the government to, you know, uh, push the adoption of new technologies and, you know, find ways to use the public sector to do things like, for instance, you know, the storage of solar and wind through, you know, a public uh, fleet of public operated, you know, uh, electric vehicles and so on. So there may be, there may be uh, alternatives to the carbon tax, uh, but I mean, certainly with uh, Stephen Harper's conservative government from, you know, 2006 to 15, there was a lot of talk about how they could do better than a carbon tax and they could find a better way of getting to Kyoto and then nothing happened. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's good to see different approaches to try and achieve carbon uh, reduction and decarbonification of uh, our economy. But, you know, the real thing is, is there a commitment to put it into place and making it work? Or is it just a kind of distracting show uh, because it's presumably uh, politically useful to have this fight over the carbon tax with Trudeau? And it seems that the public has got to the point where they're skeptical on all of this. They don't know, uh, you know, they feel they need to do something, but they're not sure what. And if what government is telling them on either stripe, on either side of, of the house, is accurate. I, I mean, it's it's almost as if you have to trust the government to take your money and hopefully do the right thing with it, which is, I guess, what we do every year when we pay taxes. But it, it still seems a very cloudy issue for people. Yeah, well, I mean, we're working on two different time frames, right? And, uh, you know, uh, on the one hand, I think we know that we have to take consequential action and in short order, or we're toast in the long run. But on the other hand, we have to pay our bills every month. And so uh, I think we're then ripe for politicians who, you know, deal with us not knowing much about the question to rile us up one way or the other about the sort of short-term impact of X or Y as an excuse not to do the long-term thing. And so, you know, I think uh, as citizens... The fact that we find it hard to think both short-term and long-term at the same time, I mean, it's a kind of common human failing, uh, means that we allow the politicians really to yank us around on the sort of short-term issues. And, and in the long run, then, uh, we're faced with this climate crisis because we seem unable to, to make some kind of consequential decision, uh, or at least our politicians faced with their, you know, getting re-elected every four years, uh, seem to shy away from taking the, the action we need. A new poll out say most Canadians are in favor of some sort of plan. What kind of advantage does that give politicians? What does the, what message do they get from that? Well, I think that they get the benefit of the doubt for doing something, and uh, a politician that opposes it simply by saying it's bad but has nothing else to offer may pay a price. So I think that probably has emboldened. I mean, obviously, uh, the Trudeau Liberals have been doing all this kind of polling privately before, and, and the fact that they've moved forward with, uh, you know, the tax in Ontario and the other provinces who haven't put a price on carbon, uh, you know, reflects the idea that they think they can win this, that at least as long as the opposition is solely uh, nothing, uh, they've got a chance. And presumably that's part of why we see Ford coming out with a plan in the next couple of weeks, because they, they realize that, uh, you know, without an alternative, it's going to look bad for them. 
Um, so I think part of it is, you know, what, what kind of plan can you sell? And so maybe Trudeau's plan of, you know, putting in a carbon tax and returning the money to Canadians, which actually looked a lot like Stéphane Dion's green shift to 2007, you know, the idea is that Canadians now are willing to buy into that, particularly a plan which looks to put as much money back into their pocket as uh, they're paying extra in terms of uh, prices of gasoline and home heating fuel. Uh, do you think Ontarians are going to be paying attention on November 15th? Um, or is it the election's over, we're giving this guy a chance, wake me when the next one happens? Uh, yeah, probably more of the latter. I mean, it's still, I mean, it's not been a very strong honeymoon for uh, Doug Ford. I mean, his approval rating uh, outside of his own base has not been good. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the next election's a long way away. Uh, I mean, nevertheless, there's a lot of different groups in society who, you know, rely in one way or the other on what the government chooses to do, you know, whether it's uh, funding of our public schools, the public health care system, post-secondary, you know, infrastructure. We talked about LRT. So, I mean, there's there certainly, you know, every municipality, you know, every uh, hospital board in this province are going to be watching closely for the signals about where this government plans to go in terms of spending and taxation over the next four years. Peter Graham has been with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you for the time. Have a great weekend. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of chatter of late in regard to the Governor General's position, specifically past Governor General Adrian Clarkson and what she has billed since she has retired. Should former Governor Generals be more accountable when it comes to their spending? Uh, a report has uh, come forward that says that uh, Clarkson has billed more than a million dollars in expenses since leaving the job back in 2005. To talk more about all of this, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Aaron Woodrick, is on the line now. Aaron, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. So how does the Governor General explain the $1 million that she's billed the uh, taxpayer since 2005? Does she, does she have to, to, to uh, acknowledge any of this? Does she have to claim anything? Yeah, the short answer is they do apparently have to submit receipts, but we don't get to know what any of them are. So this is a very bizarre situation, Scott. It's, I, I've never seen anything like it in all my time at CTF. Um, you know, it's one thing, you know, when you have a job, you have an expense account. That makes sense. Uh, it's very strange to have an expense account after you leave your job. And that's what we see here with Ms. Clarkson. Uh, you know, unfortunately, she had a reputation, even while she was serving as governor general, as not exactly being careful with taxpayer money. Um, she's been out of office 13 years now. And the records show that she has claimed on nine occasions in the last 12 years, she's claimed more than $100,000 in expenses. Uh, and we don't even know for what. So this is, a, this is a, a very strange situation, and a lot of people are, are rightly quite upset about it. Is there a limit? Is there a cap on this every year? As far as we know, there is not. And the way the rules work, Scott, is that uh, you can claim whatever you like. It only shows up as a separate line in the public accounts if you go over $100,000. So that is to say any former governor general could claim $99,000 in expenses from taxpayers, and we wouldn't even know at all. Uh, we only know that uh, Ms. Clarkson has claimed so much because she has gone over that threshold so many times, um, and we still don't even know what it's for. Her office says it's for expenses. Uh, we don't really know what those expenses are, and so we've got two issues here. We've got the cost, and then we've got the total lack of transparency. Uh, I guess once you're a governor general, some say you're always a governor general, but why the need to have a staff in an office if you've retired from the position? 
Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I'm sure that many former governors general choose to do activities. The point is they're not obligated to. They're voluntary. They're not official duties. Uh, I point out that uh, former prime ministers, you could argue, also play a similar sort of ambassadorial role for Canada. They get no such expense account. Uh, and let's not forget, too, governors general are, ta- are quite well taken care of when they leave office. Um, even after serving only five years, they get an automatic pension, $140,000 a year index to inflation. So that's quite generous. And they receive a multi-million dollar one-time grant from taxpayers uh, to help set up a charity or a foundation. So uh, we're not exactly throwing Governor General out into the curb the day they're out of office. Uh, And so to sort of add on top of all that, you know, an unlimited, um, you know, unexplained expense account, I think is, is quite a bit for most people to swallow. How does her record compare to that of other Governor Generals? Yeah, uh, we know for a fact that the only other governor general who's gone over the threshold was Romeo LeBlanc on two occasions, two years he billed over 100000 Uh There is no other record of a governor general who has claimed more than 100000 in any given year. But as I say, you can claim up to 99 999 and we don't even get to know. So uh, it, it's not clear what the record is for all the other ones. Do we know what her agenda has been over the last year? No, uh, you know, that's, I think part, part of the thing that has stuck in the craw of people the most is that when pressed for answers, uh, the Governor General's office or Adrian Clarkson's staff said it's a private matter. <laughs> I think that's a bit much considering it is public money. It is not a private matter if it involves taxpayer dollars. So, look, the good news is the Prime Minister has said that he's going to review it. Uh, I certainly hope they do that and they do something about this because I think a lot of people are scratching their heads saying, I get why you have an expense account when you're in the job. I'm not sure why you get an unlimited one after you leave the job. How does one compare to the other? How, how, how is this much different from the expense account they do get while in office? I'm sure that one's even greater. No. Yeah, but uh, I mean, are, they are doing they are doing yeah. a job. Then right. they are doing an official role, and that, I think people understand that that uh, that's legitimate. Uh, but uh, you know, a lot of people just don't understand. Thirteen years after you leave, what could you possibly be justifying spending uh, you know a hundred thousand dollars and asking taxpayers to put the bill for? Why is this coming out now? Well, we had a sharp-eyed reporter who actually just spotted this in the public accounts. Um, you know, that's another problem with this. It's just sort of buried in a, in a very large document that few people will look at. Uh, so, you know, the, at the bare minimum, what comes of all this, I think we need to have more transparency. We'd like to see the, the expenses cut off altogether, quite frankly. But at the very bare minimum, we, we need to have greater accountability and transparency. Uh, has this drawn more attention simply because this governor general has had issues like this in the past? I think that's probably not helping the story. Um, and as, as some folks might know, there was also some controversy about the current governor general. So perhaps that office in particular is, is just drawing more attention. But I can say this has been something that seems to have touched a nerve. Uh, our group set up a petition at taxpayer.com, and we got more than 10,000 signatures in 24 hours on it. So it is clearly something that uh, people are, are, are set off about, and they're, and they're expressing their, their voices on it. So what exactly is she getting at this point in her career, or now that her career is over? She gets the 146000 pension, which is indexed, yes, and, then, and then she gets uh, up to $100,000 that she can uh, use and not have to report. Anything over a hundred. Uh, she has to report. Is that all the compensation at this point she's getting from from the taxpayer? Yeah, directly. She also has a, a charitable foundation. Uh, uh, is, I believe it's the Canadian uh, the Institute of Canadian Citizenship or something to that effect. Um, my understanding is that also receives a taxpayer subsidy. So there is a there is public dollars going into her group. Now I I don't I can't say that that's going to her personally, but the, the point is there are multiple streams of tax dollars going towards. 
former governors general and their and their endeavors. And so this this is really just another one of many uh, ways in, in which taxpayers are paying for them. Would they not want you know? I guess once a governor general, obviously a governor, obvious, uh, always a governor general. But on the other hand, wouldn't they want the governor general that's retiring to take a more passive role than? And I'm sure they do than than the current governor general. So in that respect, anything that they're doing that they would expense this for is sort of taking attention away from the current governor general. Do we need this? Do we need our past governor generals still working for us? Yeah, I, I mean, again, there is no obligation. Um, some governors general maybe, and, you know, depending on their age and health and interests, may want to do more or less. That's up to them, and, and, and then that's fine. I should point out, too, a lot of the endeavors that they undertake after they leave office um, are for profit. For example, uh, Ms. Clarkson is listed as a speaker with a Speakers Bureau. Um, there are speaking fees listed there, so uh, presumably she's able to command a speaking fee. So it, it's quite possible that she's actually making money off of her former role and asking taxpayers to essentially pay the overhead costs to administrate it. So I think that would be quite offensive. Uh, your thoughts on how the Prime Minister is handling this? Obviously, this is something that's gone on through previous governments as well. Yeah, this has been around 40 years, which might be the most shocking aspect of it, that no government till now has done anything about it. Look, I'm glad that the, the Prime Minister has not just swept in under the carpet. Um, they say they're going to review it. We're certainly going to hold them to that, and we, we hope that they come up with something that is, uh, you know, in the eyes of most Canadians, much more reasonable than what we have now. Will there be some sort of role or agenda if they are getting the money, as opposed to just a, you know, yeah, here, do what you do, and, and you know, as long as you spend under 100000 you don't have to uh, account for any of it. Uh, will there be a, a more defined role of what the a retired GG is supposed to do? Yeah, no, I don't think we need to go there. I, I think that the general principle should be, uh, you know, we will we will give you your pension, we will help you set up a charity. After that, you're on your own. And, uh, you know, in many cases, as I say, you can you can actually make money off of your former role. Um, and that should be good for you. But it's really not up to taxpayers to, to, to pay the administrative cost of it. We've had many people question even the role of the governor general. How does that, this play into that whole discussion? Yeah, no, that's a fair point. You know, constitutionally, we do need to have somebody in that role. Whether or not we need to have all the sort of pomp and, and circumstance around it and all the accoutrement around it, that's a, that's a very good debate to have. Um, and, and I think it's one we should have. But, you know, this is the very low-hanging fruit. This is sort of so far beyond the pale. Uh, I have not yet run into a person that thinks, yeah, this is totally fine the way it is. Something needs to be reformed here. It's just a question of what and how far we go. It almost seems more than what the prime minister is. It almost seems prime minister, uh, prime ministerial. Well, that yeah, as I say, former uh, prime minister Scott, they don't get any such expense. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that former PMs are are more active and seen as sort of ambassadors for better or worse of our country, and uh, and they receive no such sort of expense account. So I, I'm not clear why governor generals should be getting one either. Will uh, tapering this in some way reduce the role of the governor general or the importance in people's minds? Because clearly, this is quite a symbolic and uh, quite a symbolic uh, role, and and. And, and comes with a lot of cachet. If we start pulling at these perks, will that diminish the position? Yeah, some people might say so, but then again, there are many, I think there are many public-spirited people that would be very happy to take on this role, even without the perks, even with far less perks, and, and never mind the perks uh, in office. We're, we're Again, we're talking about perks after you leave the job. So uh, you don't, we don't even have to get started on the perks you have while you're in office. We're simply talking about taking away perks that exist after you have completed your service. Do you think this is a situation where it's just a politician or a public figure from a different era and just aren't aware of the way things are done today? 
Uh, you, well, you know, with Miss Clarkson in particular, who is, is sort of the touchstone on this story, I, she has a long track record while she was in office. I mean, she more than almost doubled the, the budget of the governor general. Uh, she took an infamous trip to northern Canada that went $4 million over budget. I mean, she's, she's certainly never been tight with taxpayer money. So there's probably an element of that. But I do think it is a, it is a slap in the face for people who sort of thought they were done with her spend with, spend with ways and find out that 13 years later, she's actually still finding a way to, to, to stick it to taxpayers. Aaron, how do you think this is playing with the general public? Is it only people like you and me that are interested in this, or does the average Canadian care? No, I have to say, this is one of those issues that seems to have touched the nerve. As I said, you know, getting tens of thousands of signatures in, in a matter of days uh, suggests that people are upset about it, and we're going to see how far we can go with that petition. But, uh, you know, I, I hope the issue stays alive because politicians pay attention to these issues when people are upset. Uh, and I hope we get the policy changed uh, and save taxpayers' money down the road. Uh, the Prime Minister has a lot on his plate as we're a year out of elect- from an election. Do you think this could become one of those thorns in his side during the election? Well, I think so for a couple of reasons. I mean, look, the government uh, wants to be seen to be, uh, you know, prudent steward of taxpayer dollars. They already have some challenges on that front. They're running deficits twice as big as they promised. So, frankly, from just from a practical standpoint, these guys need to find some savings anywhere they can. And it would seem like this is pretty low-hanging fruit uh, on that front. How do you think the current governor general views this? Uh, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, she's she's been under, she's had some controversial press of her own uh, in terms of adjusting to her role and whether she's a good fit. But, um, you know, she uh, she's probably more preoccupied uh, managing her own PR and not worrying so much about her predecessors. Don't you think this is something that would make any, uh, the current and the future GG certainly uh, mind their P's and Q's a bit more? I would hope so. You know, a lot of the time, the rules that we put in place, and, and if any good can come out of this bad press, is that it impacts future behavior, right? We want to make sure that public officials and anyone who's in charge of public money or responsible for it uses it carefully. Because when we only have so much of it, and we pay, pay taxes because we expect good value for it. So if it, if it sends a signal and makes future governors general more careful, then so much the better. Do you see us altering the role here or even this position at all, even despite what, you know the role that it plays within the Constitution and, and of course, the Queen and such? Well, constitutionally, that's a that's a very big debate to have. Uh, I know that politicians uh, federally these days don't have much appetite for sort of these grand uh, constitutional debates. But, you know, I think looking at the, the expense of the office overall and, 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 as I said, some of the pomp and circumstance around it, I think that's fair game. And uh, I frankly think there are a lot of people that would be very thrilled to serve as Governor General, even if the perks were a lot less than what they are today. Good point. Aaron Woodrick has been with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation's Federal Director. Aaron, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, The commentary today, government says you can die, but they also say when. Uh, This, of course, in regard to the case of Audrey Parker of Halifax, uh, the woman who who was granted her wish and, and a medically assisted death but then was told when she could do it. And she wanted to live until Christmas, but was worried that with medication uh, and so on and so forth, that she would not be of uh, have the mental capacity that is needed when you get an assisted death. Because apparently you have to, you have to give consent before the actual lethal injection. And if any of you have had family members who have succumbed to cancer and just this, what this disease does to your body and the medication that you have to be on just to make life tolerable, uh, 
a lot of the times you're just simply out of it and can't do that. So as a result, what happened, Audrey took her life early, wanted to live till Christmas, did it yesterday. Let's bring in Shanaz Gokul, CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada, and is on the line with us now. Shanaz, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks for covering the story. It's a really important one for all of us. It just drives me nuts. Is there anything that I've missed uh, in telling this story in regard to Audrey's case? Um, Is there anything more you can expand or add detail to what she had to go through? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Audrey uh, received a breast uh, cancer diagnosis, a terminal one, two and a half years ago. And that cancer then spread um, into her bones of her body. She would talk about how her uh, skeleton... Uh, the pain was excruciating, and then it spread into her brain. So what we know is that if she didn't die yesterday with an assisted death, she was definitely going to die, there was no question, and she was going to lose capacity uh, before she died. That would likely happen as well. And so worried, uh, rightly so, that she was going to die in this horrible manner, um, she was put in a position where she had to make a cruel choice, where she uh, died weeks too early, uh, and she really did just want one more Christmas with, with family and friends um, or die horribly. Uh, and so that's that's what she did. She died yesterday. And I spoke with her um, the day before, 24 hours before uh, she had the assisted death. And you know, she was very busy um, in the weeks uh, uh, leading up to her, her death. I, I've actually never seen a one-woman uh, tour de force like, like Audrey Parker and the way mm. that she was out there and talking you know, in the media and telling her story. Um, she said, you know, Shanaz, I, I've been out there. I've, I've done my best. I, I know I knew nothing was going to change for me, um, but I'm, I'm finishing writing my obituary now, and I'm going minute by minute, and I'm running out of time. And, uh, mm. you know, she, she was so public and showed such courage um, because she wanted Canadians to know, and she didn't want other people to suffer um, the way that she was and, and, and then having to die too early. And I'll tell you, Scott, that that is already happening, that there are people, Audrey is the first person to really come out um, and give us a, a face and a voice to something that's happening that we said would happen in 2016 um, for people like her. There, you know, she's, She kept saying to me, well, the first time I spoke with her a number of weeks ago, that you know, people in my category uh, should be allowed to go ahead. And I was thinking and over in my head, like her category, her category. And then I said, well, your category is assessed and approved for medical assistance and dying. And she's like, that's exactly it. Mm. Um, so she really helped us to understand that it's, uh, it's similar to an advanced request for someone who has a diagnosis like dementia, but it's different. It's an active request. She's made the request. She went through comprehensive uh, assessments by two independent clinicians. She was approved. Um, but there was, she's, this high, you know, she's in a high-risk, vulnerable group, as are a number of other people um, who you know, may succumb to, uh, to cancer in their brain, um, either in terms of rendering them incapable or because of the medication that they need to, to take just to hold the pain at bay, um, or somebody who might be at risk for a stroke, which can also... Uh, render them uh, incapacitated. And so these are really vulnerable people because their medical condition is so precarious. Uh, and so she helped us as an organization understand, you know, people who are assessed and approved, we always knew there was that category. We always believed that, you know, people in her condition should be able to go ahead. But she really helped us to understand that it's slightly different than an advanced request which is still important, and people with diagnosis like dementia should also be allowed to go ahead. 
Um, but in her particular case, the violation to her charter rights to life, liberty, and security of the person is not a trivial matter, right? She gave up life. And, you know, we always say at Dying with Dignity Canada that assisted dying should be life-affirming. A person should be able to live the longest and the best quality life they can until they can't. And what we saw instead was Audrey Parker having to die far too early. Uh, I've got a couple of questions from listeners that that, that, that seem obvious but don't. Uh, again, many are having a hard time processing this. Uh, the question is, could she not have transferred that decision to her caregiver or the individual that had her power of attorney? That yeah. way she could have, have, have been, you know, lived until uh, Christmas Day and then Boxing Day, the power of attorney could have taken over. No, no, she could not have. We do not have... Um, in the laws um, as they are, and, and we haven't advocated for that. We believe you should be able to make your own decision for yourself uh, in the future. And so she couldn't, that was not an option for her. Um, what we would like to see is that the made request form, once you have been assessed and you have been approved, that possibly and, you know, a way to get around this is there's an additional section that says, I understand I've been assessed and approved. I, I, I would like this form to be used as confirmation of my consent should I lose capacity in the days ahead to still be allowed to go ahead and have an assisted death. It's still her choice, uh, and that is not allowed, and it's definitely not allowed to have a substitute decision maker or someone else make that choice for you, and we don't think that that should be the case either. We think you should be able to make that decision yourself uh, should you lose capacity or if you have dementia for some time in the future when you lose capacity. How do you make that determination when you don't know when you're going to lose capacity? So say she is granted what you have suggested. Would there be a date that she would write, you know, uh, December 27th, that's it, or when I get to this stage? How do you determine once the person is there when to yeah. do this? You know, it's, it's a tricky thing, too, because uh, capacity often isn't a straight line. You just cross it, and that's it. Right. Um, you know, in Audrey's case, you know, I, I think she she wanted one more Christmas, um, and so she might have said, you know, December 27th, um, and she might have added, or until I lose capacity. <laughs> um, and right. if that happens before December 27th, that's when I want to go. So I think that could work in both instances. You set a date. And for a lot of people, you know, when we're talking about assisted dying, it is life-affirming. I can get through one more summer at the cottage. Mm. I can make it to my grandchild's birth. Yeah. You know, I can go to my daughter's wedding. And so, you know, it can be life-affirming, but if, you know, if you're so afraid you're going to lose capacity, you're not going to be able to have that option, and you're going to miss those things. And we really want people to live as long as possible. You said this, you know, is a gradual thing, although sometimes it can be when you talked about things like stroke and such. Yes. But, and again, if I'm asking, uh, you know, naive questions, tell me, but these are some of the questions I'm getting uh, through email. Why could she not have just done this on a daily basis? Today, I'm feeling like this. Tomorrow, I'm going to feel a bit worse. The next day, a little bit worse. The next day, a little bit worse. And then get to a point where she goes, before she gets to that point of not being able to consent, and then go, okay, why yesterday? Can, can yeah. you stretch it out until, okay, I, I've had enough. I'm, I'm still yeah. coherent enough to say I've had enough. Right. 
Um, well, you know, the, the difficulty and in many parts of the country, uh, and, you know, that could be a possibility for some people, uh, for some people who are at risk of losing capacity um, for, you know, through a stroke or something else. I mean, you, you don't even know you're going to have that happen, right? It can just happen. Um, but the, the problem is, is that, you know, people have to rely on the clinicians to be available to be able to do that. And so we have a shortage of clinicians, doctors and nurse practitioners across the country who can be called in on a moment's notice. It doesn't work that way. Um, and so, you know, I think what makes more sense is, you know, what Audrey had wanted, which was, this is the date I'd like to live till. Um, if I lose capacity, I'd like to be able to go because we don't know. Uh, and, you know, I think your, your listeners will appreciate this. Um, you know, to book an appointment with your family doctor to get an appointment for urgent surgery, you have to wait. Yeah. And if you're waiting too long, you could be losing, you know, the ability altogether to proceed. So it's not a tenable option at all. What has government reaction been to the passing of Audrey? So, I mean, it's, you know, yesterday we felt encouraged because the federal health, health minister, uh, Teddy Paw Taylor, said that, you know, her heart really went out uh, to Audrey Parker and her family. Um, and if she could change the law for Audrey Parker, you know, she would do that, but she can't. Um, and so I, I felt a bit encouraged. But then this morning, the um, federal justice minister came out, um, also expressed some concern for Audrey Parker, but went back to the same, you know, messaging that was around in 2016. Our law has struck the appropriate balance. We were trying to protect the vulnerable. We think we've done that. And there is no plan to change the legislation. That, for us, felt really callous um, because Audrey Parker, while not vulnerable in the sense that she could advocate for herself, she absolutely could. But people who are at high risk of losing capacity are vulnerable and need to be recognized. And so our, we felt very disappointed to hear that from the Justice Minister this morning. Um, and, you know, we realized when we look at Audrey um, and, you know, someone who's been assessed and approved and as at risk at lo- of losing capacity, or we look at someone um, who wants to make an advance request because they just got a, a devastating diagnosis for dementia, the law doesn't protect these people. Um, and in Audrey's case, the violation of losing her life is so severe, uh, you realize it's acute. It's, it happened yesterday. That um, we realize that this, this has to change. We can't, you know, we can't say in our efforts to protect the most vulnerable, these other vulnerable people uh, can have made too early. What are, the, the what are the government's concerns? You talked about the vulnerable. Uh, are those concerns warranted? Uh, or are they just using the vulnerable ticket as an excuse to justify their decision? Are, do, do, do their concerns have merit? You know, I think that there are absolutely concerns uh, around, uh, you know, people making voluntary decisions, making sure they meet the eligibility criteria, which, as you know from past discussions, we believe that the criteria for natural death being reasonably foreseeable is unconstitutional. Um, so, there, of course, there are concerns. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's more than one kind of vulnerable person here, right? And through the comprehensive assessment process, you know, clinicians have to ensure to independent clinicians that the person has capacity, but they're also trying to ensure uh, that this is what they want. This is their decision, their choice. They're not being influenced by other people around them in a way that's, that's negative. And that has been happening all across the country. We have safeguards in place. And so now the real question is, is what about vulnerable people who have been assessed and approved? 
Why can't they be allowed? And I think the the lack of recognition that someone like Audrey was vulnerable because of her, uh, you know, po- the possibility, the high likelihood of her losing capacity. I think that that's just devastating because in Health Canada's own reporting on assisted dying, you know, one of the primary reasons after a person's made a request that they're not able to have it fulfilled is because they've lost capacity. And if you talk to doctors and nurse practitioners um, who go into someone's home or hospital room on the day of, after everyone is gathered for this person who's been suffering, has intolerable suffering, to have an assisted death, only to find out uh, they've lost capacity. You can't help them. Is this is this about legalities? Is it about money? Is it about lawsuits? You know, it's it's really hard to to understand. Um, you know what? Or is what it exactly. morals? Is it morals or money? It's you know it's a it's a good question. I don't know that I have the answer to it um, in terms of the motivation, but I do know the impacts. And the thing that worries me, because we know of other cases like Audrey, where people have been forced to die too early for this fear. We know of people today who are contemplating the same thing. And I would think for the government that they should be really concerned because we are collecting stories. We are going to help people share them, that we will have a parade of people like Audrey who just want their rights respected. Because right now, you know, they're being arbitrarily discriminated because of the precariousness of their medical condition, and that can't be tolerated. How often did you speak with Audrey? How do you explain what she did? Uh, well, and, and going uh, public with this. Yeah, you know, I it's funny because we we met her a few weeks ago. Uh, she'd already been out in the in the media and wanted to see if there was anything um, we could do to support her. And it was really clear in the in the first call that. Um, she just wanted to help other people. She wanted people to know, you know, what her um, experience has been, that she had a good life. Uh, that she was a real uh, character uh, in, in Halifax. A lot of people describe her that way. Very vivacious, very outgoing, um, and, uh, you know, very, very, you know, passionate about this. She's, uh, you know, she became an activist, a human rights activist in the last few weeks of her life, um, and I think has done... Um, you know, great service to the rest of us to sort of really bring attention to people who are in her situation. And so we got to know her. Um, uh, I ex- We explored a number of things with her. One of the things that I didn't know we were going to be able to get, but that we managed to facilitate, was a teleconference call with her and some of the policy advisors at the Federal Justice Minister's Office. We were very grateful um, that we were able to have that call last week and that they were able to hear Audrey, in her own words, hmm. uh, no holes barred, talking about her devastating medical condition and what dying too early means to her. Um, you know, we were able to help share her story, um, and we've been sharing her story in the last couple of days with our supporters. And, you know, she said to me uh, 24 hours before she died, uh, I knew it was going to be the last time I would speak with her, and, uh, and she said, Shanaz, I want you to tell Canadians with my dying breath that I had to be forced to die too early, huh. it's wrong. That was her motivation. Uh, do you think she may have made it, uh, and we don't know this, do you think she would have made it till Christmas? Would she have survived till Christmas? You know, she um, she said, and she said this multiple times in conversations with her, 
she could feel because the cancer was in her brain mm-hmm. and so she could feel the changes. She, it was, you know, harder for her to read. She was doing a lot of writing. It was taking more time. So she could already feel, you know, yeah. how that cancer was um, uh, being, you know, so aggressive in her body. And her body was ravaged with mm-hmm. cancer. Uh, and so, you know, I think uh, and I, I touch wood um, for, for all of us uh, not to go through what she's experienced. Um, but it's hard to say, and I think that that's why, you know, she was, uh, I was teasing her at one point, once she helped us identify, assessed and approved, you should be allowed to go ahead, and I said, Audrey Parker, you are assessed and approved for medical assistance in dying, and you are adamant. She was never going to change her mind. Mm. This is what she wanted. Um, her suffering was great, and uh, and she didn't want to die horribly, so, I mean, she had a lot of conviction, and she's given us you know, an entry point into the discussions that has to happen now, you know, around advanced requests uh, for people with dementia, um, you know, mature minors who can already make life-ending medical decisions but can't have an assisted death, um, for people with mental illness as a sole underlying criteria, and for people who have been assessed and approved. These are people we have to find a way so that we're not taking life away. I mean, if you really want to put it in stark terms, Audrey Parker's life days or weeks were taken away from her because of this legislation. And that's not what this is supposed to be about. Yeah, it's just so ironic. It's bizarre. Uh, What was her, do we know what her last day was like? Uh, Well, I wasn't with her, um, but um, by all accounts, um, she she was with family and friends and had a a special breakfast and um, was surrounded, I think, with artwork and with music. Um, And, you know, she, she said she wanted, she organized, a pretty death. She really wanted to yeah. have a pretty death. She was um, a, a ballroom teacher, dancer teacher. She did makeup. She was a stylist. She was a very uh, a glamorous uh, woman in how she presented herself, and so she had a real appreciation for beauty. And uh, so she planned, you know, a beautiful, a beautiful death. Uh, and it was it was funny talking to her at some points because she was saying. Um, yeah, I'm going to put on this really great spread, and I'm having, you know, her uh, hmm. memorial service uh, at Pier 21 in Halifax next week, and, and the really great spread, it's like, you know, she had this, she was she planned it all. She wanted it to be um, what she wanted it to be, and uh, from what we've heard, uh, despite the fact that she didn't die at the time of her choosing, she still had a really beautiful day. Hmm. How difficult is this for you and your staff when you talk to these people and you become personally involved with them? Uh, that's a really good question uh, for your listeners. We do have a personal support program. Uh, we have a psychotherapist on staff that offers emotional and bereavement counseling uh, for people you know, navigating uh, tragic medical circumstances. We have someone on staff that does patient navigation for medical assistance in dying because it can be so complicated finding the help you need. And if you're in facilities that won't allow it, there's all sorts of complications. And if you need help finding the two independent witnesses, um, and all of our staff are involved on the front lines. You know, we get calls from all across the country. We get calls um, and email. Uh, sometimes we'll, we'll get email from, from people who've been on our supporter list for many years saying, oh, you know, thanks thanks to you good folks for all that you've done for, for this, you know, for this work and for the cause. I'm having an assisted death, death next Friday at 2 o'clock. Um, and, some, you know, how do you respond to that? Yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah. and for us, you know, you know, every time we hear about a death, we're probably one of the few organizations that can actually send a card um, that we all take the time to sign. Uh, it's a bit cathartic for us, um, and it's really important for us to make sure that um, – 
you know, our, our staff are taken care of and that we're well supported. We're a really tight team, small office of uh, eight people right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're very sensitive to each other's needs because uh, this work it can be hard. But I'll tell you, Audrey Parker made me laugh a lot hmm. uh, in the last few weeks. And so when I think of her, I'm always going to have a smile on, on my face because she was uh, such a charming, charming lady. Shanaz Gokul has been with us, CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada, commenting on the passing of Audrey Parker and hopefully changing in legislation, which hopefully will become Audrey's law. Shanaz, thank you so much for the time and insight. Keep up the great work. Uh, we've talked many times about this. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm thinking we're going to have to keep that up. Thanks. Yes, Good you luck will. to you. You're a very, very you. courageous staff there. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.